This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, it's finally here. After months of waiting, months of speculating, and guessing. What happens this week? Ron, we finally have Oh, go outside and feel alive. Yesterday I looked out at my, my uh, side porch and the thermometer said 108. <laughs> it was wrong, but I didn't care. I was just like the yeah. idea of it. <laughs> well, it feels like 108 when it gets above my IQ here in the Northeast Front. There is another event this week equally anticipated. And that's the NFL Draft, which is going on in Rick Gossam's hometown of Dallas starting Thursday night. Who's man? How many are they expecting for this one? Well, they expect to pop what sold off in 2017 when a quarter of a million fans turned out. They already have 400,000 here who have signed up the NFL experience at AT&T Stadium this week. So, hey, that's all bigger and better and sexy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you going? I'll be in town at the Cowboys facility on the other side of town at the Star. I attended 20 drafts in the yard, of many of them with you, so I've already been to the circus. I want no part of those crowds or that traffic issue. And at the Star, we Me? Go a friend of the show? Never. I'll let everyone else do it. You and Jerry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what, Gooseman? You can't boot the show that we have today. This feature is the NFL Crafts. Uh, run up this final mock for us, former Michigan State and Carolina wide receiver. with us, too, as we feature Rick's alma mater and a pre-draft tour of colleges. And Hall of Fame voter Pete Doherty, Green Bay Press Gazette, is here to tell us which Green Bay Packer not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame he'd like to see get in. So, Ron, the Browns have two picks in the top four. Your Patriots have two picks in the top 31. Which team are you more interested in? Got to be the Patriots. Do they package them and go up? Do they package them and go down? Do they stand pat? Pardon the pun. Did they take Tom Brady's replacement? Did they blow the whole thing, which they've done in the past? That's why we watch. Now, as for Cleveland, after Johnny Menzel, just don't draft any guys who wear bandanas. Bad juju. <laughs> well, that sounds good. So let's get to it, guys. And we will right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, before we get started with the draft, I see the former running back Matt Forte became a campaign manager this week. Uh, he was promoting former teammate return specialist Devin Hester, uh, who, like Matt Forte, retired a Chicago Bear, as, and I quote, a first ballot Hall of Famer, unquote. Comments? Goose? Ron? Comments? The greatest kick returner in the NFL's first 75 years, Billy White Shoes Johnson, is heading into his 32nd year on the ballot and still waiting the call from Ken. Matt, you might want to stick to your day job. <laughs> Ron, you got a message? I do. If the NFL eliminates the kickoffs as they're threatening to do, 
you could certainly write the history of the NFL without Devin Hester or White Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. Okay, well, on to the draft. Uh, as we said, big news in New England and comforting news, I would think, Ron. Uh, Tom Brady's agent, Don Yee, says you can expect his client to play this season and many more as long as he's operating at a championship level. And that, of course, comes in the wake of Brady and then Rob Gronkowski not showing up for April workout. So, Ron, Let's look at this announcement. First of all, curious timing, I think. And, and, and secondly, how does it affect the Patriots' direction in the draft, it affect, if it affects it at all? Yeah, you know, it was it was curious. But this is what it's become here in the last few years between him and the organization and Belichick. You know, there's a, it's like a kabuki theater. I'm not, I'm not sure what a kabuki theater is, but I know it's not good. Uh, you know, that's sort of the, the deal. But I don't think it affects Belichick. Belichick has never consulted with Tom Brady on draft day. Uh, uh, he's cooking the groceries, uh, groceries, and he's not going to start now. Same with Gronk. Uh, but what he is consulting is the NFL Coaching Survival Handbook, which is create options that save your ass. And that's what Bill Belichick will be looking to do. <laughs> well, option number one is to start that quarterback. Um, so let me get one ask. I'm going to ask you one other question about this. Oh, I mean, essentially what's going on with that team, because there are a lot of moves this offseason. No Brady at workouts, no Gronk. Reports that Brady may be behind a mutiny. Reports that Gronk may be traded. What's happening there, Ron? Well, you know, nobody likes to tell the truth, but the truth is nobody knows exactly what's happening, and that includes yeah, the right. players and the coaches and even the owner. Uh, the fallout from not playing uh, Malcolm Butler, I think, is um, going to be more severe than they initially anticipated, not unlike what happened in Seattle when they didn't give the ball to the running back. Yeah, uh, you know, right. they never really – that team never recovered. Um uh, you know, last time I saw Tom Brady, he was on Facebook sounding like Greta Garbo. You know, I want to be alone. Uh, <laughs> I want to be appreciated. Uh, to which Belichick just gone, huh? So the truth is, in my opinion, Bill Belichick is now like Willie Loman, the fading protagonist in Death of a Salesman. You remember what they said? A man way out there in the blue riding on a smile and a shoe shine. And when they start not smiling back, that's an earthquake. And when you get a couple, couple spots on your hat, you're finished. <laughs> Was that Kabuki Theater, Ron? <laughs> no, that was New York Theater. Oh, New York Theater. Okay, Broadway Theater. All right, let's go to the other side of the country, Gooseman. Uh, former UCLA coach Jim Mora, who once said the Browns should draft SC's Sam Darnold with the first pick, not his former quarterback, that'd be Josh Rosen, now says, well, you know, Rosen will be, here we go again, a future Hall of Famer. Now, I, I don't know what to say here. I mean, the guy hasn't even been drafted, and Jim Mora's already fitting him for a gold jacket. So, Goose, why, do you, why don't you simply try to explain it? Okay. Quarterbacks get their tickets punched to Canton by winning championships. The more you win, the better your chances for enshrinement. Josh Rosen couldn't win a Pac-10 title in his three years as a starter at UCLA, so I'd slow down that Hall of Fame train for Rosen let him take a snap first. <laughs> the voice of doom, Ron. Goose, man. Wow. Bring in the heat. Bring in the heat. Goose, uh, you've done drafts for decades, and there are four quarterbacks, including Josh Rosen at the top of the board, five in the first round, if, of course, you count Lamar Jackson as a quarterback and not, say, as a wide receiver, which I think we do. So how possible is it that all four will be gone by the time Buffalo is finished with the sixth overall pick? Well, he says is if there are five quarterbacks gone before the seventh pick, there's going to be a sixth quarterback in the first round. It'll be Oklahoma State's Mason Rudolph. If right. five quarterbacks go that high, the NFL will be guilty of panic buying. There may be six quarterbacks in the first round, but there aren't six franchise quarterbacks. There is not the John Elway in this draft. But I'll say this. Lots of teams at the top of this draft need quarterbacks, and there are lots of quarterbacks available. Personally, I can see as many as four of these quarterbacks in the top six, but not worthy of that lofty selection. 
Goose, do you think Rudolph goes to the bottom of the first round? Yes, I do. If if, if Jackson goes in the first round, I think uh, Rudolph sneaks in the back back end. Okay, uh, and I'm glad you mentioned John Elway because. I wanted to mention John Earl to you guys. Um, you know, if, if there were to be a run like that on the quarterbacks, uh, it would be a bigger run at the position. I'm talking about four in the top six or whatever it is, five in the top seven. Bigger run on the position. The 1983, when there when were six quarterbacks taken in the first round, including John Elway at one with Baltimore and Dan Marino at 27 with Miami. But there's really no comparison between the two drafts. I mean, that one had three Hall of Famers in the first round, Elway, Marino, and, of course, Jim Kelly. And... And, and, you know, Ron, I, I think Goose is right. I don't know that anyone really has a conviction about any of these guys this week. I mean, if they did, we'd all be saying, oh, Sam Darnold, you know, slam dunk first first pick of the draft. No one's saying that. Not yet. No, you're right. <clears throat> you're right. And, uh, you know, Goose raises a good point about panic buying. And this is why these guys, in my opinion, most of these teams that are picking are going to rue this draft and rue this day because they're going to pick one of these guys and three years from now, they're going to be still looking for a quarterback. And that's a problem. You know, this constant sort of reaching out for guys that you know in your heart is not the guy that you want him to be. But they go and take him anyway. He gets tremendous pressure on him. He doesn't deliver. And then, boom, he's you know he's Vince Young. Yeah, or he's or uh, Jamarcus Ryan Russell. Leaf. Or he's Ryan Leaf, you know? Yeah. Not good. Yeah, well, I, I think I said it all earlier. I, don't, I, I, just, I wouldn't take any of these guys. I don't think there's, there's, there's a difference maker there. I mean, you're going to take one because your fans will get excited. But that elation will die quickly, I think. <laughs> yeah, they'll get excited, and then they'll be there with the pitchforks and the and the uh, uh, fire the GM. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Three years ago, <laughs> what was he thinking? You know, the same guy was cheering like crazy. All rise! Here comes the judge. Well, I have a conviction about someone, and while it's a special team star, no, it's not Devin Hester. No, not yet. Anyway, nope. It's former Buffalo Bills wide receiver and gunner Steve Tasker, whom I wrote about this week on our website talkoffamenetwork.com and I figured the time was right before the NFL Ron gets rid of kickoffs but uh, hey the time's always been right for Steve Tasker if you haven't heard of him I can understand he didn't catch 10,000 passes or throw for 5,000 yards in a game he played special teams and he wasn't an elite returner like say well Devin Hester but he was a special player he played gunner for the Buffalo Bills and he played it so well making tackles forcing fumbles and creating field position He's been called the greatest special teams player ever. Now, I don't know about that, but what I do know is that he was named to the Pro Bowl seven times, first team All-Pro five times, and the only special teams player to be named MVP of the Pro Bowl when that actually meant something. He's also a member of the Bills Wall of Fame, and for good reason. He was as important to the team's run of four Super Bowls as Hall of Famers like Jim Kelly, Thurman Thomas, and Andre Reid. In fact, when we had Hall of Fame coach Marv Levy on this program four years ago, he told us that Bill Parcells once told him he had to prepare harder for Steve Tasker than he did Kelly, Thomas, Bruce Smith, or anyone else on those Bills teams that went to four consecutive Super Bowls. Steve Tasker belongs in the Hall of Fame, said Marv Levy. Special teams are one-third of the game. But unfortunately, that's the problem. Because in the eyes of Hall of Fame voters, they're not. Otherwise, we wouldn't have one specialist select in the Hall's first 50 years. Yeah, I know we've had Ray Guy and Morton Anderson enshrined within four years. But does anyone honestly think Steve Tasker is going to get into the room when he hasn't been a semifinalist since 2013. He won't. Uh, he won't. I'm sorry, but that's the unfortunate truth. It's wrong, it's unfortunate, and it's sad. But if nothing else, Steve Castor's case deserves to be heard. Clark, will the special team's excellence of Matthew Slater make Tasker an even longer shot in the future? No, Goose, I, I don't think it's Slater. 
as much as it's Devin Hester. Or there goes that name again. Look, there are no returns specialists and can't write. I mean, only two kickers and one punter. So when voters break the mold, to me, it won't be for a guy who made a lot of tackles. It'll be for a guy who scored a lot of touchdowns, and that's Devin Hester. Well, what do you do, Clark, with guys? You know, in Dallas, they'll say Bill Bates. You know, in, in New England, yeah, they're, they're going to say Matthew Slater. You know, Brian Mitchell. Yeah, every everybody. Brian Mitchell, really, Re- you, you could argue, is the greatest returner ever, really. I mean, yeah, everybody did. Sure. Uh, so, but if you start to look at gunners, you know, every team's got a gunner. Right, right. You know, that they think was great. Uh, how do you ever decipher those guys. Yeah, that's a good question, but not every team has a gunner played on four consecutive Super Bowl teams. That's why I think the distinction is here, and I do think he was special. I think he was different, but you're right, Ron. Um, that's the problem here. Those those statistics are so arcane, it's very difficult to sort them out. But I'll tell you what's not difficult. We've got to go to commercial right now. Um, I don't think Steve Task is going to the Hall of Fame, but I do think we're going to commercial. I know we are. In fact, I see Robert sing that to me, so let's go. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, you got to love the draft. I mean, we're going to have a couple hundred thousand people. Dallas booing Roger Goodell. Millions more watching on live TV. And former quarterback Jeff Garcia, a guy covered in San Francisco, and who was supposed to announce Tampa Bay's third-round pick, won't because the Bucks traded away. Anyway... Jeff Garcia saying, I could care less about who they pick, nor do I pay attention to what picks they have, unquote. Jeez, you can't make this stuff up, Goose. Thanks for showing up, Jeff. You know, Garcia could turn this into a business, making the rounds each year and making the picks for a different team he played for, San Francisco, (laughs) Cleveland, Detroit. Philadelphia, Tampa, that'd be a pretty good gig, I think. Yeah, each place he goes, he could go, I could care less about who they pick. (laughs) You know something, Ron? I'll be honest with you. I like the idea of having foreign players announce day two picks, especially when those players bring as much emotion or energy and fire as Hall of Fame hopeful and, of course, friend of the show, Drew Pearson did a year ago. When he announced the Cowboys pick in Philadelphia, I mean, that was classic. And he <laughs> had the great. Eagles fans booing, which, as you know, Ron, is about as natural as breathing air there. Oh, you're right. Me, too. I, I love it. What I, what I don't like is the Eagles deciding to send out a kicker in yeah. Dallas to make their second yeah. pick. A kicker. They're not even football players. Except for Ray Guy, of course. Uh, but David Akers, I mean, come on. Uh, you know, uh, what are they thinking, you know? Is Bill Berge lurking around, just be happy to punch one more guy in the throat, I'm sure. You know, that's what they should have had out there, you know. In fact, he would have called out Drew Pearson right there. Oh, I, I love that. <laughs> Goose, by the way, any chance that Drew Pearson shows up for the Cowboys pick in Dallas this week? Well, Drew Pearson will be in the building. Uh, the Cowboys have named DeMarcus Square and Pearson as their draft ambassadors. But the Cowboys are going to have <laughs> Hall of Fame with Bob Lilly. Call the second round pick and current center Travis Frederick make the third round pick. Wait, 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 wait a minute! Draft ambassadors? What the heck is that? When you watch a guy taunt the Philly fans, the next year you make him an ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a pretty interesting story in the Dallas Morning News this week, and it was about Drew Pearson and about how his life has changed since the 2017 draft. And Goose, you, you know something about that because you work at the Dallas Morning News, and well, guess what? He also wrote the story, so tell us about it. Which... <laughs> well, he gave me the background about uh, how he decided to go all fire and brimstone. 
He said he watched Terry Carson go to the stage, get booed, read the pick, and leave. Then he watched Clinton Portis go to the stage, get booed, read the Redskins pick, <laughs> and leave. And Drew says, I'm sitting back here for three hours. I'm not going to go up there and just read the pick and get booed. So he engaged the crowd, <laughs> haunting him with the five Super Bowl rings comment, Hall of Fame owner Jerry Jones. Before the night, before that night, he was known as the guy who caught the Hail Mary. Now he's the guy who made that draft day speech. <laughs> You know, uh, he was making 20 public appearances a year in retirement, mostly during the football season. But after that night, he's not making 100 speaking appearances. He's got corporate America embracing his passion in the process. Uh, he may have changed how those second-round announcements are forever made. <laughs> well, Goose, the, the other side of that is, has he changed how the Hall of Fame voters yeah, look at him? Question. Yeah, I mean, he, did he revive himself and revive his... Uh, uh, his chance to get in the Hall of Fame, which certainly would be well-deserved? Well, he's certainly hot on Google. I know that. After that night, everybody's Googling up Drew Pearson. They saw he was an all-decade receiver. But uh, as you know, Ron, it's it's in our hands in the senior committee. It is. It is. And hopefully we won't fumble the ball. And Googling him and voting for him are two different things. Man, I think this – I can't believe this guy's not in. Anyway, um, um, well, listen, we've all been covering drafts for decades. Um, some longer than others. Um, so, Ron, I'll start with you. What's your best or most memorable story? <laughs> oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. I know where they yeah, go. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Uh, it was the 2000 draft, and the <laughs> yeah. Patriots were between stadiums. They had knocked down most of the old stadium. We're building the new stadium, but they had left a little bit of it there. And that's where they stuck us, of course, in the hopes that the rest of the building would collapse around us and we would all die a violent death. Uh, so they, you know, but they put the phone lines and all that. So I'm sitting there. I was working for the Boston Globe at the time, and I and uh, I need to make an early call to my office. And I pick up the phone, uh, and I handheld phone, you know, and I listen. Before I can dial, I hear the dulcet tones of Bill Belichick on my phone, talking to another team about a trade. And I say to myself, self. For one day, you're going to be the greatest genius in the history of the draft. <laughs> Only for one day. <laughs> so the whole night, I had everything, everybody. They talked to everything they did. I wrote this huge story. Uh, the PR guy nearly got fired. They blamed him like he, as, if he, as if he installed the phones. You know, they blamed him. Uh, it, was, it was one of the great. Belichick, the, he looked at me the next day. I mean, he looked like his head was ready to explode. And I said, well, you know, man. I paid for the phone. I guess I can listen to it and use it. You didn't pay for that line. <laughs> okay, mine is, in 2005, I had Aaron Rodgers number eight in my top 100, and I gave him to Tampa Bay at five in my mock draft. So he slides out of the top 10 and slides out of the top 20 before Green Bay finally claims him with a 24th pick. I had a couple of calls at that point. They asked me, geez, how, how did you miss on Aaron Rodgers? Well, turns out I didn't miss on Aaron Rodgers at all. The NFL did. And by the way, the coach at Tampa that passed up in Rodgers, John Gruden. <laughs> oh, great one. Well, mine's similar to sort of uh, to, to Ron's, a similar story. Um, 
I was working at the San Diego Evening Tribune, and that's evening as an afternoon paper, back in the 1980s, and our first deadline was 9 in the morning, which was great because in those days, and, and as I said, it was the 1980s, there were 12 rounds, and they started at 5 a.m. California time. You remember that, Ron? You used to live in yeah, California. sure. Um, anyway, the Chargers make the first round pick, all right? And they usually draft it fairly high because they weren't very good. And um, I write the story, and I'm just about ready to send it in when a Chargers technician comes around and has the guy next to me, a writer next to me, if this cord he's holding and was about to unplug, if that was his, and, and the guy says, no, it's not. So he pulls the plug, and poof, just like that. I lose my story. <laughs> it was one of those those Texas Instruments machines. I mean, you, oh, yeah. you couldn't save it. Boom, it was off the screen. It just goes black, gone. And it's, you got to be kidding me. What you just do? He goes, I unplugged the, the, the wire. I said, I, no, you unplugged me. I got crazy. Uh, they had to separate the two of us. But I, I did get another story in on time about the draft pick. And you know what? might have been James Fitzpatrick, a USC offensive lineman. And you know what, guys? That was worse than my story, which is saying something. Um, okay, so, um, Gooseman, who or what has been the best story this year, I mean, in 2018, leading up to this draft? You got any favorites? Well, with, yeah, without question, it's the quarterback shuffle. You know, who does Cleveland take? Yeah. It could be, yeah. it still could be any one of four quarterbacks Darnold, Rosen, Allen, Mayfield. You know, most years you can pin the topic down to one or two players. Four right. is a bit much. And speaking from history, if you miss the first overall pick, your mock draft is going to be an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Uh, uh, well, for, for me, it was watching Bill Polian backpedal faster than Deion Sanders after he first suggested that Lamar Jackson switch from, to wide receiver from quarterback. Talk about touching the third rail of sports. I mean, you know, he got the kind of blowback the Gooseman gets in Dallas when he suggests Tony Romo might not quite be the reincarnation of Danny White. Uh, you know, next thing you know, Bullion thought that Lamar Jackson not only should play quarterback, he should replace Brady now. <laughs> Whoa, wait, Ron, wait a second. Talk about backpedaling. How about Jim Mora? I mean, first he throws Josh Rosen under the bus, and, and that was his former quarterback because Jim's his former UCLA coach, and then realized it doesn't look so good when, well, the UCLA coach or former UCLA coach says he'd take the SC quarterback over his former quarterback. Calls an audible and says, uh, oh, wait a minute, check that. My bad. The UCLA quarterback will be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. You know what? Mr. the first pick, but he's going to the Hall of Fame? You want to explain that one, Ron? <laughs> yeah, that was – yeah, I mean, there's backpedaling, and then there's, like, backing right off of falling off the, off the bridge. You know? Cliff, like, yeah. What are you talking about? That was, that was yeah. not good. Not, not a good look. No, no. <laughs> hey, uh, Gooseman, uh, no audibles on this show. You, you ran a poll last week asking readers – whom the Cleveland Browns should choose with the first overall pick. Now, you gave them a, a, a choice of the usual suspects. That would be Rosen, Darnold, Barkley, Chubb, Mayfield, and I think Allen, yeah, I think all those guys were on there. So who won? Darnold and a runaway, and it wasn't surprising. You know, He's the most NFL-ready quarterback in this class. You can mm-hmm. plug him in and go from day one. Most fans want a quarterback who can do that, and Darnold would be the safest choice by the Browns. Yeah, now I, I saw what you wrote on our website when you – we uh, recalled what happened there in that uh, that poll. You would have gone with Barkley, right? I mean, even though he didn't go to Michigan State, you would have gone with Barkley? Yeah, even though neither he nor Ezekiel Elliott could rush for 100 yards against Michigan State defense in their final college season, I, I'm not holding that against him. <laughs> Both are great backs, and the good news, they don't have to worry about playing that Spartan defense again. 
I knew he would work that into the conversation, Ron. Exactly. So, Spartacus. Uh, if, Ron, if you had to take the first overall pick, if you're the GM of the Cleveland Browns, oh, God, perish the thought. But if you were the GM, who would you have taken? Or who would you take? I'd take the running back because, uh, barring injury, the consensus is that uh, you know he's the kind of guy who can carry a team, and quite frankly, he can protect a young quarterback from himself. Uh, you take him first, and the best available quarterback with a fourth pick. Uh, right. Because none of these quarterbacks are slam dunks, or the people aren't sold on any of these guys. But everybody's sold on the running back. Take the running back and and take one of these slappies at number four. Well, if you have a couple Patriots golfers, and then I'm going to both those games because I want to see Tom Brady. How about you? Ron? You can only vote once. You can't vote oh, twice. Oh, the Patriots. You'll be torn. You'll be torn. I'll just keep voting both times. I'll vote once, then I'll put, <laughs> turn it off. Vote it again. <laughs> Go back and forth. But you, Ron. <laughs> I, I, you know, why am I not surprised, that, Clark, that that's the choice you would make? You know, a lot of guys would go to great historic things. And sort of, no, not you. Yeah, well, we're going to stop Front right runner. there. <laughs> we're going to stop right there. We're not going to stop over with our draft preview. Up next, we have draft analyst Rob Rang at NFLDraftScout.com. He's coming up right after this. Yeah. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, because this is the draft edition of the Talk of Fame Network, we would be remiss. No, we'd be downright nuts if we didn't have someone on here to tell us what to expect this week. Now, of course we do, because Rick Goslin is with us, but we have another expert and someone I worked with at CBS whom I have enormous respect for, and that's Rob Rang of NFLDraftScout.com. We had Rob on a podcast last month, and he was so good there, we wanted to get him on the air. Rob, thanks so much for joining us again. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me, guys. So let's just cut to the quick here. A lot of quarterbacks at or near the top of the draft with, I guess, five, maybe six going in the first round. Who's your top quarterback? And who's the guy at quarterback who worries you the most? So my personal top-rated quarterback is Sam Darnold from USC. He's been my top-rated player the entire year ever since Chad Kelly was the last pick selected a year ago. Then I moved Sam Darnold up to my top prospect in the country, and lo and behold, he has maintained that position the entire season. Uh, That said... I don't know if he necessarily is going to be the number one overall pick. A lot of buzz right now. Cleveland Browns are going to be making Baker Mayfield the first quarterback selected. And it's hard to argue with that considering the fact that Baker Mayfield was such a player at Oklahoma. When you really break down his tape and you know, just about every team that he played against, he was the best player on the field. So I think that Baker Mayfield may wind up jumping ahead of Sam Brown when it comes to who actually gets selected first. As far as the quarterbacks that I'm the most nervous about, at least among the, the so-called elite six, uh, you know, those quarterbacks who I think are going to go in the first round, I think it's got to be Lamar Jackson. I, I am absolutely enamored with his physical ability and his potential, but at the same time, he played in an offense that very much catered to his strengths. There's not a lot of NFL teams out there who are going to be as willing uh, to, to gear their offense around what he does. 
Um, and so I do believe that Lamar Jackson, as gifty as he is, does need to go to an offense, a, a play caller, and an owner, frankly, that is going to be a little bit more willing to cater to what Lamar Jackson does so very, very well. Rob, I, I want to go back to what you said earlier. Did I hear you right? Did you say Sam Darnold is the best player on your board? And, and if you did, does that mean you've got ahead of Barkley and, and Quentin Nelson? Yes, on my board. And, and the reason I say that is not just the fact that Obviously, to win in today's NFL, you have to have the quarterback position secured. I just think that Sam Darnold has all the intangibles, has the physical abilities to be a superstar in the NFL. I see accuracy from the pocket. I see accuracy on the move. I see the intangibles, the poise that I'm looking for late in games. I see the athletic ability, the arm strength. To me, he's the whole package. I do have Josh Rosen, the quarterback from UCLA, who, in my opinion, is that much purer of a passer as my number two rated player. And then I have the Saquon Barkleys, the Bradley Chubbs, the Quentin Nelsons of the world. Terrific football players, don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I'm also looking to get trophies. And I, as good as a running back as Saquon Barkley is, as good as defensive end, uh, as Bradley Chubb is, as good as a guard as Quentin Nelson is, for example, they didn't play for national championships. Um, and I believe that, that the way that you're going to be successful in the NFL is that you have to address that position of quarterback, and that's why I would take Sam Darnold number one overall. So it's clear you love Sam Darnold. What the heck are the Browns seeing in Baker Mayfield that they think he's better than Darnold? <laughs> Well, that's a great question. Believe me, everybody I know in Cleveland, I've been asking that question. But uh, I think what it comes down to is, is really, as I mentioned before, with Baker Mayfield, you see a playmaker. You see the, the, the brash personality that I personally am a little bit nervous about. Um, I definitely have some concerns about Baker Mayfield, any quarterback, frankly, at that size, uh, playing in the AFC North. I mean, when you... Uh, you consider the fact that obviously Cleveland, but as well as Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore, you're talking about all these teams are outdoor stadiums. Um, that means that it guaranteed that at least eight of the games on your uh, each season is going to be out outdoors. And so I do have some concerns about that. Um, but at the same time, I also think that the Baker Mayfield is such a playmaker. Obviously, the the Browns made the trade for Tyrod Taylor, who physically speaking is kind of a similar guy as Baker Mayfield. So I think there is a plan in place. <clears throat> and while they don't necessarily fit in very well with what Hugh Jackson has historically done, I think this might be a little bit of a statement about what the Browns are planning to do in the future, and that may or may not involve Hugh Jackson. Okay, off topic, have you ever seen a draft board where there were three guards before the first offensive tackle? <laughs> it's a terrific question. I have not. At least not off the top of my off the top of my head, you know, that, that's really where this draft class, in my opinion, is so unique. Obviously, all the talk about the quarterbacks, and justifiably so, but, you know, I, I love the, the line of scrimmage. I, I want to see the interior of the offensive line go against the interior of the defensive line, and this is an extraordinary class in both regards. Quentin Nelson is a stud. You know, all this talk about the future Hall of Fame player, I think that's putting the cart above the horse a little bit. But at the same time, he is a terrific talent. Um, I, it's not very often that I put a guard in the top five, six players in the draft, and I certainly believe that Quentin Nelson is that. Um, and then, you know, a lot of respect for Isaiah Wynn from Georgia, and 
Uh, you know, one of my absolute favorite players this draft class, Will Hernandez from UTEP. To me, all three of them deserve first-round consideration. And I think in today's NFL, guards are more important than ever just because we're seeing the teams are getting a little bit more creative in, in finding those interior pass rushes. And if they don't have the defensive tackles to do it, then they're twisting or stunning or blitzing um, to be able to attack quarterbacks right up the middle. That's why it is so imperative that you have quarterbacks like Darnold, like Mayfield, who can escape the pocket and be just as accurate on the move as they are when they're standing plant, uh, feet planted in the pocket. You, you mentioned uh, Quentin Nelson, and you mentioned that you had him in your top five. Do you think he'll uh, go that high? How long do you think uh, it is before he comes off the board? Because as you know, you know, whenever you take a guard, even if he's the greatest guard ever, the fans are sitting there groaning. <laughs> Especially if they're Jets fans. Well, exactly. I mean, you can make the argument. We just mentioned Will Hernandez before. I mentioned he's one of my favorite players in the draft. I think he's going to be a you know an absolute stud, a longtime starter in the NFL, just like he was at Utah. But the, the Miners didn't win a single game a year ago. And so it just shows you what a guard can do for you. So uh, there's a couple of different spots that I think make some sense. Uh, you have the Denver Broncos seeing it at number five overall. John Elway, of course, knows the value of an offensive line, and that's the one way to kickstart your running game as well as the uh, as well as whoever is going to be playing quarterback for you. Not only this upcoming season, it's likely to be the free agent addition case of Keenum, but but also long term future. So the five, number five overall is about the highest. I can see Quentin Nelson going. I think a more likely scenario might be a couple of picks down the board. Um, and then of course, there's going to be a lot of trade talk if we have all these quarterbacks. So it's going to be interesting. I think Quentin Nelson, to me, for the same reason you just mentioned, one of the guys I think could actually slip down the board just a couple of spots, even though he is believed to be truly one of the safest players in his draft. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about uh, Baker Mayfield and, and uh, the problems of his personality. And one of the things that, that struck uh, us about him uh, as it relates to Cleveland is when you think quarterbacks in bandanas in Cleveland, you think of Johnny Mansell. <laughs> so, <laughs> can you see any scenario where they're sitting in that draft room in Cleveland and, 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 and they're ready to, to take him and somebody holds up a picture of Johnny Mansell with that bandana? I said, no, I don't think so. Well, I definitely understand that. I mean, that, that to me is, is one of the arguments against Baker Mayfield, but I think you can make the same point about USC and with Cody Kessler and the experiences of, of USC quarterbacks recently uh, in Cleveland. It hasn't been very good. I mean, frankly, I mean, you guys know as well as anybody that the Browns haven't had him unless they're going to drop the quarterback out of Miami and hope for Bernie Kosar all over again. <laughs> then they're going to have to wait for a long time. They, they've got, the Cleveland Browns have gone to just about every program there is in the country in their search for a quarterback. So, so I, I think that the, the fact that you have a different front office is one of the reasons why there is not going to be quite as much concern, uh, at least from the conversations that I've had, um, as far as the comparisons between Johnny Manziel and Baker Mayfield. The comparison I'm getting from some of the folks in Cleveland is not Johnny Manziel, it's Russell Wilson. And, and so that whether, you know, whether or not Baker Mayfield ever ends up becoming the player that, that Russell Wilson has for Seattle and obviously taking the Seahawks to their first uh, Super Bowl championship, that obviously remains to be seen. But, you know, the, the, the core strength, the, the compact build, the, the competitiveness 
the the accuracy again in the pocket on the move and like Russell Wilson you have to kind of see Baker Mayfield in person to really get a feel for the velocity and this is a very accurate and a, and a pretty strong arm quarterback he can make every throw I was stunned guys I mean I was there on the field for a bit at the Senior Bowl and watching Baker Mayfield line up right next to Josh Allen who of course is well known for his bazooka for an arm and Baker Mayfield was throwing the ball and with every bit the velocity uh, you know and the zip on the underneath passes that, that Josh Allen was and so that's really where I started to jump on board with Baker Mayfield he's my number 11th rated player overall he's not my number one rated player like a lot of people out there um, but at the same time I definitely was late to the party a little bit with Baker Mayfield but I'm acknowledging that the NFL teams out there certainly like him and again there's a lot of things to like about him and that's why I think that whether he goes number one overall to Cleveland I have a hard time imagining him getting any further than number three overall to New York Jets. We're speaking with Rob Rang of NFLDraftScout.com on the Talk of Fame Network and you can find us at thetalkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And Rob, as you as you know, there's always a seismic move at or near the top of the board. Where do you think that's going to happen? When's the first gotcha moment or the wow moment we go, oh my God, I can't believe it? Well, I think it could happen number one overall. Victor Mayfield does indeed go number one. Um, and, but I think the Giants, number two overall, really hold a lot of the cards in this draft class because if Baker Mayfield is the, the so called surprise selection number one, then there's been a lot of buzz out there. The Giants want to compete immediately with a player like a Saquon Barkley, but also a lot of buzz that they really like the quarterback Sam Darnold. So if they go with a quarterback, let's say, at number two overall, you have the Jets presumably picking a quarterback at number three overall, then what are the Cleveland Browns doing there at number four? They obviously have all the position players out there still available to them. They could also trade down. There has never in the history of the NFL draft been quarterbacks go one, two, three, and four that could happen, and that could be your exciting moment. Hey, Rob, w- one other question for you. Do the Patriots take a quarterback, and if so, when? I think they do take a quarterback. Uh, you know, I, I think that, and I would not be surprised at all if it winds up happening in the first round. In fact, I think that there's a chance that we're going to see the six quarterbacks come off the board. Of course, it's only happened to one other time in, in NFL draft history, back that that same 1983 class. Six quarterbacks in the first round. I think that the Patriots in there, number 31 overall, number 23 overall, they do have some need to corner, pass, rusher, and tackle. But if, say, a Mason Rudolph, who has the size and the touch and the downfield accuracy that fits in so well with what New England has prioritized in the past, I think he makes a lot of sense to them. Um, and, and so I would not be surprised at all if the Patriots – uh, you know, kind of surprised a lot of people and go with the quarterback in the first round, especially with all the talk that Tom Brady, while coming back this season, who knows about the future after that. Rob Rang, thanks so much for the time, and good luck getting sleep nope, this week. No problem, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure talking with you. You got it. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, thanks, Rob. That was Rob Rang of NFLDraftScout.com. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I feel like we should have Roger Goodell announce what's going to happen next, but uh, heck, Robert, let's just do it like this. Yes, that means we're on to the two-minute drill. Goose, you've got it this week, so let's get started. The NFL draft has been in Chicago, Philadelphia, and now Dallas. Where is the next stop? 
That'd be 345 Park Avenue, NYC. That's the only place the commissioner won't get booed. <laughs> Canton on the 100th anniversary of the league. They didn't start the draft there, but they started the league there. That should count for something. Cowboys legend Drew Pearson taunted the Philadelphia draft crowd last April. Who should the Eagles send out to taunt the Dallas draft crowd this April? Uh, Roger Goodell. Oh, wait a minute. He's emceeing the event. Well, Concrete, concrete Charlie uh, Bederick would have been great, but he's gone. So how about Bill Berge? He had an edge. <laughs> <laughs> the Packers are having Jerry Kramer announce their second-round pick. Will Dallas fans remember the ice ball warm to Kramer? Yes, they will, but only if he promises Goose to return to Seinfeld. I doubt it, Gooseman. I think they will give him the cold shoulder. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers will have a parrot announce their third-round draft pick. Who or what should announce the Browns pick? Lassie. <laughs> How about an idiot? Same as usual. The Denver Broncos are having Steve Atwater announce their second-round pick. Is there a message here? Yeah, there is. Cheer this name or I'll do to you what I did to Christian Okoye. <laughs> I don't know, Gooseman. I'm baffled. If there is a message, only Jeff Legwald will get it. Is there anything Cleveland could do with the first overall pick of the next of the 2018 draft that would surprise you? Yes. Get it right. <laughs> Trade it yeah. away. Is there anything the Patriots could do with their two first-round picks that would surprise you? Yes. Have Ron announce them. <laughs> Yes, but I have a better man. Have Malcolm Butler show up finally and announce them. 15 years from now, which quarterback in the class of 2018 will be touted as a first ballot Hall of Famer? Josh Rosen. I know because Jim Mora told me. <laughs> Somebody named Josh. Oh, Jackson, Lamar Jackson, or Jackson Brown? Joe Jackson, the musician, not the baseball player. Look sharp, baby. This one's easy. Bo knows Jackson's. That's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. We have Moose and Muhammad, Hall of Fame voter Pete Doherty of Green Bay, and lots of Michigan State without the band coming up in the next hour. So don't go away. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the NFL Draft edition of the Talk of Fame Network. And guys, uh, before we get going here, I'd like to ask you something, Goose. Uh, you did a zillion mock drafts, and there are a zillion more mock drafts out there today. But the minute there's a trade Thursday, all of them, I mean all of them, are about as good as your next ticket for the San Diego Chargers game. So why can't people get enough of them when they're going to be blown up? They're going to be no good. There's never been a special mock draft. No one has ever come close to perfection. But what mock drafts, mock drafts do is allow a fan to fantasize that a team can get better. By signing players in mock drafts, fans can visualize the improvement. That's why mocks are so popular. They provide hope for something better down the road for your franchise. Yeah, I fantasize like this, but not about mock drafts. Give hope a chance! <laughs> I, just, I just don't get it. Of course, that's nothing new. Um, I'll tell you what else I don't get. What the Jags, Tom Coughlin, said last week that Tom Coughlin is the show. Uh, this is when Jags have finally as you guys saw. Mercifully, we don't have to do this one. Awful. 
And then Tom felt compelled to say, and I quote, We have three players that should be in the Hall of Fame. Tony Pacelli should be in the Hall of Fame. Fred Taylor should be in the Hall of Fame. Jimmy Smith should be in the Hall of Fame. Now, Pacelli, I'll give him. Will he make it next year? Taylor's ranked his uh, 17th all-time in rushing with 11,695 yards and 7 1,000 yards each. And then she'll say if you've done that in New York and Chicago, they are talking about four yards from O.J. Simpson, four yards from John Riggins, nearly as many as Thurman Thomas and Franco Harris. Jimmy Smith, 22nd in yards with over 1,200, 24th in receptions. He's got better numbers than Heinz Ward, who's regularly mentioned as a Hall of Fame contender. Uh, and more than Charlie Joyner and Michael Irvin. You can make a good case for either of them. If they played in, in a place like Dallas with a goose man behind them, they're in on roller skates. <laughs> it's a goose. It sounds like they just got bronze votes. Jimmy Smith, former Cowboys draft pick. There are oh. running backs in line ahead of Fred Taylor, and there are receivers in line ahead of Jimmy Smith. That's all I need to say. Uh, Ron, the only thing I'm surprised is he didn't mention Mark Burnell. Hey, even Tom Coughlin has limits. <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of the hall, we have more candidates we'd like to discuss when we return from break, and they're not from Jacksonville. Actually, they're from Green Bay. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the Packers are in the news again, this time with Aaron Rodgers buying a stake in the NBA Milwaukee Bucks. True story. First NFL player to do it. So, well, we figured, well, you know, it's time we should get up to Green Bay for our best not-in-Canton series. So that's where we are. We're making stops in all 32 NFL cities and talking to past and present Hall of Fame voters about the most glaring emissions from each of their towns. And today our stop is Green Bay, where we sit down with Hall of Fame voter Pete Doherty, a longtime beat writer covering the pack for the Green Bay Press Gazette. Hey, Pete, you getting a slice of the bucks, too? Get a piece of that team? <laughs> yeah, if only. Uh, kind of tells you where Aaron Rodgers' career will probably be heading when he's, uh, when he's done with football. I think he's probably got big plans for himself. That sounds like it. <laughs> Hey, Pete, for decades, Jerry Kramer was the best player not enshrined in Canton. Well, he finally gets his bus this summer when the Hall inducted its class in 2018. So now who is the best Packer not enshrined? This one will probably catch people by surprise, and it's a really hard sell, but it's a guy named Vern Llewellyn who played from uh, 24 through 32. And, um, you know, the Packers historian thinks there's an argument that, you know, you got to include this guy in the discussion of, greatest Packers ever, and uh, I mean, a couple of things that just jump out about him, um, you know, that, that first class was in 63, and uh, Johnny Blood, who played for the Packers, was part of that class, and uh, he said that, he's, he's on record as saying Llewellyn should have been in there uh, before him, or should have been in that original class, and you know, the, the thing that makes it so tough is this is a pre-stat era, and you know the guy. The, the one number they have on this guy is that he, when he retired, <clears throat> he played uh, nine years, so he retired in '32, and he had 51 touchdowns. Which uh, you know the league started in '20, and he was the leader. And the next guy on the list was uh, Ernie Nevers, actually at 38. So he scored a lot of touchdowns, mostly as a receiver, some as a runner. Um, he threw some touchdowns too. He was those you know those running backs, those halfbacks. They they did everything. But he was a really good uh, defensive player, too. And, and maybe the most important thing he did 
was he was a punter, and you know, I know this sounds bizarre, but the, the game was such a field position game back then, and I think the average teams, you know, scored less than ten points a game, and they punted, you know, on first down, <clears throat> on second down, third down, you know, they'd punt at any time, just to. Um, you know, it was all about field position, and this guy was the best punter at the time. And, you know, Curly Lambeau picked his, uh, in, after the 46th season, he picked his all-time Packers team, and he had, uh, he picked Dillwig as one of their, uh, uh, Llewellyn as one of the backs ahead of Johnny Blood. I mean, he, he just, you know, he thought this was one of their great early players, and, you know, nobody's heard of this guy. I bet you most of your viewers have never, our listeners have never heard of this guy. Um, but he just, he, he played at a time, it's a hard sell because there's no, there's almost no stats to go on. Um, but he was, they won three titles during his career, and he was probably the best player on, on those teams from 29 to 31. Well, Pete, uh, let's stay in, in that uh, era. You know, I wrote a stated case a while back on uh, Lavi Delwig, receiver of those 1920 teams. He's a great pass catcher, preceded Don Hudson, uh, as you know, was an all decade selection in the 20s. How does he manage to kind of slip through the cracks? And, and obviously now he can't compare his numbers to anybody who's, who's playing today. But what do you think happened to him? Yeah, same thing. And, you know, it's, um, there's, there's hardly any stats that go on. And, you know, there's no, there's no film. It's only newspaper accounts. And, um, you know, when they, they did that first haul in 63, I mean, the game was so different by 1963 than it was in the 20s and 30s. Um, and, you know, and studying up on this guy just, you know, for doing this, um, it basically, it sounds like, if you read the quotes from the guys who played at that time, that as good as a receiver as he was, he was a better defensive player. And when he retired, he had, I think it was like 27 interceptions, which was uh, uh, second in the league in the first 20 years. And I think <clears throat> McNally might have been first, or uh, Johnny Blood, that his name was Johnny Blood McNally. Um, so, you know, this guy was was great on both sides of the ball. And I don't know, you did that story on him, and so I'm curious what you think, but... <clears throat> It's just uh, it's just so hard to compare players of that era with even the 50s or 60s, and these guys. I think I'm sure a lot of guys got lost in history. Well, Pete, I'm going to agree with you. It is very hard to compare players of that era, and it's funny because you mentioned Vern Llewellyn. I went, who? Vern? I, yeah, I hadn't heard him, but but I want to stay with that era um, with my <laughs> question here. Goose passed me a note here, and it's a good one. From 1920 through 2000, there have been 20 all-decade quarterback selections, and 19 of them have been enshrined in Canton. The only guy missing, you know, Cecil Isbell, the guy who threw all those passes to Don Hudson. What have voters been missing about Cecil Isbell? You know, he's the, he's the hardest sell of all because uh, he only played five years in the league, so this is um, Terrell Davis, you know, that whole discussion over again. Right. Um, and he said he quit because he saw Lambeau get rid of a bunch of guys you know, whenever their performance started to drop. And so he didn't want that to happen to him. And, you know, football, you didn't make a lot of money back then. So he took a job uh, coaching at Purdue as a, as a halfbacks coach. Um, so he was at the prime of his career. He actually had better stats, and he was probably more decorated than Sammy Ball was. And Ball started a, a year earlier. But, you know, Ball played for a long time, and, and, uh, and Isbell didn't. But, you know, when he retired, he was the first guy to have 2,000 yards passing. Um, I, he had the high. I think he had 59 touchdown passes when he retired, which uh, was three more than Baugh, even though Baugh had played six years. So they were they ranked one and two in the league. Uh, this guy was a really talented passer. Uh, Lambeau had him as the uh, as the left halfback, which was the throwing position, the primary throwing position when he picked all time Packers team. That same team 
when he picked that uh, in 46, he picked this guy over Arnie Herber, who was in the Hall of Fame. Um, so he was just a really talented guy, but, you know, five years in the league, that's just a, a really short career. And, I mean, you remember those discussions. You know, I took part in, a, you know, two or three years with Terrell Davis. I mean, so this would, this would be a really hard sell, but he was, you know, he was a meteor. I mean, when he was at his – when he played, he played great. Pete, let me ask you about one of Ron Wolf's favorite players, Bobby Dillon, who played safety for the pack in the 1950s. The guy had three nine-interception seasons. Picked off 52 passes in his eight-year career. If he had played on just one of Lombardi's championship teams, would he already be in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I suspect so. And, in fact, um, when Lombardi took over uh, after the 58 season, so in the, you know early 59, January or whatever, he goes through all the Packers tape from 58, and there were three untouchables on the roster, and this guy was one of them. He retired in the offseason, and five weeks into training camp, Lombardi basically begged him to come back for one more year, uh, which, which, he, which he did. He actually didn't play that great. He was probably smart to retire when he did. Um, but he was an outstanding player. I know Wolf uh, just loves him, and he's gone back and looked at you know a lot of tape from that era. Well, Pete, well, how about uh, one of our uh, favorite players here at Talk of Fame, Leroy Butler? He was Love the first-team all-decade safety the 90s, and he can't even get into the room uh, to be discussed as a, as a finalist. What do the voters need to know to be more enlightened about uh, Leroy Butler's candidacy? You know, the first thing is, you know how they, you know, these safeties now, the best safeties, they're, they're blitzers and sackers and interceptors. They do all that stuff, and they tackle in the run game. Um, they're they're, they're multi, almost multi-positional players. And Butler was the first guy to get 20 interceptions and 20 sacks in a career. And, you know, I looked at this list, or I you know, did a search on pro football reference, and if you get all the guys who have 20 sacks, at least 20 sacks, and go by interceptions, Charles Woodson leads at 65, and uh, Tiki Barber has 47, and Butler is next at 38. Um, and Brian Dawkins is actually uh, one behind Butler at 37. Um, you know, Woodson, I think it's pretty much a given he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. Barber, you know, he's, he's, I think he was eligible for the first time this year. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there will be some discussions on him. But, you know, Butler was like the, the, the first of those guys. And he was a true safety. You know, Barber was a, a nickel corner. Even Woodson, Charles Woodson, Played a lot of nickel corner. That's what he did here with the Packers. Butler was a true safety who was getting those interceptions and sacks. And, you know, I know Reggie White was the big name on those defenses, and he was still a great player at that time, but, but Butler was a really close uh, second for, for being a guy. And, you know, in 96, people probably don't remember this, uh, they had the number one defense in the NFL in 96 when they won the Super Bowl that year. Pete Doherty, thanks so much for the time. And you know what? If and when you see her, would you do us a favor? Give Danica Patrick our regards. <laughs> I'll say I'll say hi to her if I if I see her. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Hall of Fame voter Pete Doherty. Up next, it's time to pack goose and some ice because we're going to Michigan State. No, not literally, but liberally. So stick around. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, before we get to Michigan State, guys, uh, a former Syracuse linebacker announced his retirement last week. That was Dwight Freeney. Went on to become an elite pass rusher in the NFL, as you know, tied for 17th on the all-time list, and he won a Super Bowl along the way. So the obvious question, Dwight Freeney, is a Hall of Famer? I mean, there's only one guy ahead of him on the all-time sack list who's eligible for the Hall and not in. 
and that's Leslie O'Neill plus Dwight Freeney. He was a first-team all-decade defensive end. And two of the three others at that position, Michael Strand and Jason Taylor, they are in Canton. Jason Taylor, of course, was a first ballot choice. So, Gooseman, what about Dwight Freeney? Hall of Famer? This committee loves sacks. Loves sacks. Yeah. Ronnie? Well, I watched him play a lot of games against the uh, New England Patriots. And most of the time he was on his back when it got him out. So, for me, it would be a going to be a long walk for me to put him in the Hall of Fame. Well, when they need him to be a Hall of Fame player, he wasn't very in any of those games. Let me let me address Goose that long walk they, he mentioned. As I said, Taylor was the first ballot choice for Canton, yet he was a second team All Decade defensive end. Freeney was a first teamer, so shouldn't that make this argument sort of easy? Goose. Oh, for me, yeah. For yeah. Ron, no. <laughs> right. <laughs> As as a as a as a great friend of ours, a great friend of the show, the great Bill Parcells used to say, "I go by what I see," and what I saw was <laughs> a, a, a meal full of pancakes. Okay, well, we're not going to be talking about the pancakes. We're speaking affect the, the game. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. hey, anyway, speaking of the Colts, congratulations to former star wide receiver candidate Wah, Reggie Wayne. He's going into the team's ring of honor. On November 18th. Congratulations, Reg. Okay, on to teams involved in the 2018 NFL Draft that have been among the top college producers of NFL talent, the series that we've promoted the last two months. We visited the universities of Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, Penn State, LSU, and Georgia, and it says right here, this week we're going to East Lansing, Michigan, to the halls of Rick Gosselin, a.k.a. Michigan State University, or as you like to call it, Goose, wide receiver you. Now, I know Reggie Wayne didn't go there, Goose, so you're going to have to explain that one to me. Oh, this is easy. Michigan State has produced six Pro Bowl wide receivers, Gary Ballman, Dick Gordon, Gene Washington, Andre Risen, Moose Muhammad, and Derek Mason. Both Gordon and Muhammad led the NFL in receiving. Both Muhammad and Mason had 100 catch seasons. Muhammad has scored two touchdowns, Super Bowls for two different franchises. Plexel Burris caught the winning TD in New York's Super Bowl upset of the previously unbeaten Patriots. Mark Ingram was the leading receiver in New York's other Super Bowl victory. Daryl Turner holds three receiving records for the Seahawks in a record book otherwise owned by Hall of Famer Steve Largent. And I haven't even mentioned the best Michigan State wide receiver of all, Kirk Gibson, who elected to play baseball and help two different franchises win a World Series. Well, I will mention Kirk Gibson, Gooseman. Was he a better football player than he was a baseball player? You know, he, he played baseball on a lark. He was an All-America wide receiver in 1979. And his football coach, Dale Rogers, encouraged him to play baseball that spring to increase his leverage and bargaining power. He became an all-Big Ten outfielder, hitting 390, 16 home runs, 52 RBI in 48 games. Detroit Tigers wound up taking him in the first-round baseball draft, and the NFL backed off. Had he not played baseball, he'd have been a high first-round draft pick. Here's a guy, 6'3", 220, who ran a 4.29. He was bigger and faster than NFL corners. He could run over them or past them. He averaged 21 yards a game uh, catch in college, scored a touchdown, win every five catches. But it was a good call going baseball. He won up playing 17 seasons, much longer than his football career would have lasted. And, of course, won those two World Series. Gooseman, one other question about your alma mater. We know friend of the show, Morton Anderson, became a Hall of Famer. Also, is a guy who knows how to sing that Michigan State fight song. Do you remember that? Sure. When you had him on? That was yes, great. Sir. You know. Anyway, um, does Michigan State Michigan State have any other players either who can sing the fight song or who are in the <laughs> Pro Football Hall of Fame or both? Well, two in the Hall of Fame, Joe DeLamalier and Herb Adderley. And, you know, Earl Morrill was an NFL MVP, Carl Banks, an all-decade player. 
Yeah, there's a lot of football talent coming out of East Lansing. Earl Morrill, throw the ball to Jimmy Orr. He's wide open in the end zone. Throw it to him. Jeez. Anyway, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to digress there. I keep getting those visions painful of memory, Super Bowl three. Oh, painful memory, Super Bowl three. It's killing me. Um, let's get you involved in this conversation. I know you didn't go to Michigan State. I didn't either, but let's get you involved here. When I say Michigan State, do you think of, let's say, Bubba Smith? Tony Mandrich or Rick Goslin? <laughs> well, uh, sometimes I think of the Goose Man, but mostly I think of George Webster. Oh. Number 90. Oh, over yes, back. Sir. That guy was a killer on defense. Oh. And I mean a stone killer. You know, I yep. mean, uh, it, I was in high school at that time playing uh, linebacker, and, and I had two favorite guys, George Webster and Dick Butkus, because they both believed in the same thing, assassination. <laughs> I mean, that, that, he was six four. He was two hundred eighteen pounds. He really was a revolutionary player because you know he started a defensive back, uh, and then they sort of created this rover back position for him. I mean, the dude was everywhere, all yeah. over the field. Yeah. I mean, just yeah, I, I hey, Ron, that was that was back when we were linebacker. You, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's that's always what I think of when I think of Michigan State. <laughs> what are you linebacker? You wide receiver? You whatever? You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned because I love Webster too, Ron. I love him. That would be Daniel Webster, who went to Dartmouth College and argued the Dartmouth College case in front of the Supreme Court. Come on. Hey, you know, since you mentioned him, by the way, how come we haven't written about George Webster in our State Your Case? I mean, he's Hall of Fame worthy, right, guys? I mean, Goose, isn't he Hall of Fame worthy? We, we have. Yeah, we did. We did. We did? Yeah, I missed I think, it. Read the like website. Yeah, read I think I did it. I missed it. Oh, well, that's why I missed it. Right. That's yeah. why I missed it. I mean, oh, he had some injury problems in the, in, in, uh, the NFL and career wasn't as long as he would have liked and uh i think you know early on he was the same explosive player but you know he lost a lot uh you know once he got uh injured but man in college i mean i saw a thing uh uh a poll that somebody was was doing i forget whom uh, a while back but they picked george webster as one of the hundred greatest college football players of all time and uh and he wasn't on the he wasn't on the back end of the hundred he was on the front end of the hundred that guy oh he was in he was picked as the greatest player in michigan state history and he was an all-time All-AFL pick, too. Oh, he yeah. was tremendous. Yeah, he was yeah, a great he was player. Great. Hey, Ron, I, I want to stay with you here. One more question here. Riddle me this, would you please? How did Michigan State's Le'Veon Bell slide to the second round of his draft? And that would be the 48th overall pick. How'd that happen? Well, I think if you look at that draft, you know, at that time, the NFL had really started to discount running backs and the use of running backs because they were throwing the ball on nearly every play and, the you know, Debates were starting about were they even going to need running backs anymore. Uh, he actually was the second back taken in that draft. Um, uh, Giovanni Bernard was the first, uh, and Cincinnati took him. They were both mm-hmm. taken in the in the second round. So I mean, right. really, if you look at the position, you know, was a top rated guy, uh, but they had downgraded, you know, running backs in the in the league mistakenly, as he as he's proven. You know, he's he's averaged a thousand yards a season uh, ever since he's come into the league. And, look, we've all seen what, what he's done and how he's changed games yeah. for Pittsburgh. Um, but it just was a re- really weird, quirky sort of time where suddenly these guys started thinking we can play without running backs, which was yeah. hell stupid <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new for the NFL. Nothing new. Hey, Gooseman, last how do they come up with Where do they come up with these ideas? You know, I mean, you I just wonder, know. what are they thinking? They're probably reading your stories, okay? <laughs> Gooseman, last Michigan State question. Uh, do your Spartans have any prospects in, in this draft, the 2018 draft? Uh, just one. All-Big Ten center Brian Allen. He'll be a late-rounder. This is a heavy underclass team. Only three seniors. Wow. I wonder if there's going to be a Dartmouth player chosen ahead of him. What do you think, Ron? 
Uh, I bet on the That would be no. That would be a no. I think not. <laughs> That's the signal that our Rob Borges has something more to say, or someone to skewer, for our next segment called Borges or Bogus. And that's when I hear that, you know, I, when I hear Ron Borges or Bogus, I go, get me out of here. i got to get out of his way. Let him go through. Ron, I'm getting out of your way. Just go through. The stage is yours. Get out of here. Well, you know, if ever uh, a week was the one where the word bogus was invented for, it's draft week uh, in the NFL. Uh, which means it's bonus bogus week, actually. <laughs> Nearly everything you see in here all week long will be bogus, including when any number of general manager head coaches stand up after they pick a guy and say, we couldn't believe he was still on the board. <laughs> Loosely translated, that, that, that means we don't know what the hell we're doing. We, over, we overrated the guy. Bogus. For a week, you heard the Browns are taking Baker uh, uh, Mayfield number one. Then you heard bogus. The Browns are taking Josh uh, Allen. Then you heard bogus. The Browns are taking Sam uh, Donald. You heard. Then you heard bogus. The Browns are not taking Josh Rosen. You heard. Then you heard that was bogus. The only thing you're certain is when the Browns were going to take somebody at number one, <laughs> unless of course they don't, which would be bogus. You hear many things uh, the week of the NFL draft, both before a single selection has been made and well after uh, they've been made. Nearly all of what you hear is bogus because. The thing is a crapshoot. 70% of the time, they get it wrong. They gum up snake eyes. Nobody's fault. That's how it is. Millions upon millions of dollars are spent on fact-finding missions, medical appraisals, video, eye drops for the people watching the video, travel, darts for those teams like the Browns who just throw them at the board. This is sometimes sold as scientific analysis. Weights, measures, times equals the man. Bogus. Forget the mistake that was Tom Brady. Uh, in 2000, pick number 199. Get about that. Let's go back to some drafts of guys who were taken on rounds that no longer exist. Roosevelt Brown, round 27. Hmm. Hall of Famer. Lou Kriegman, round 26. Hmm. Hall of Famer. Ray Berry, round 20. Hall of Famer. Do you get my drift? Willie Davis, round 15. Hall of Famer. We can go on and on. Deacon Jones, Johnny United. You could put together a playoff team just out of round 7 which still exists today, barely with just the Hall of Famers like Larry Wilson, Shannon Sharp, Joe Schmidt, Bobby Bell, Jim Ringo, and then you got fill in with other guys like Jake Scott and Marquise Golson and Donald Driver and Julian Edelman. You'd be in the playoffs with guys that nobody wanted. The point is this. Draft week is fun. It's also bogus. Bogus picks, <laughs> bogus predictions, bogus trades, bogus mock drafts, bogus real drafts. And maybe that's why we love it. It means everything and nothing is important. So the best way to look at it is this. Most of the players drafted this week, this is going to be the best week they ever have in the NFL. <laughs> Ron, how excited would it be if a team passed? <laughs> that would be great. I- I'm waiting for one time where a guy says, you know what? We don't want any of these slappies. I <laughs> said, no good. We're not going to do this. we got to feed them. we got to clothe them. Forget it. Hey, Goose Man, good news for you. We have more Michigan State on the way with wide receiver Musa Muhammad waiting to talk to us. And that is not bogus. He's coming up right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest holds the Super Bowl record for the longest touchdown catch, an 85-yarder against New England. And no, it's not Isaac Bruce or Terrell Owens. It's Moose and Muhammad of the Carolina Panthers, and he did it in Super Bowl 38. 
of course, three years later, he caught another touchdown pass in a Super Bowl, only this time for the Chicago Bears. And Moosen was just as prolific in the regular season, leading the NFL in receptions with 102 in 2000, then leading it in both yardage and touchdowns in 2004. He played 14 seasons and retired, retired with more than 11,000 career receiving yards and a spot on today's Talk of Fame Network program to talk, talk about his time with the Panthers, Bears, and more importantly, Michigan State, the spotlight school in this week's draft series. Moosen, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Moosen Mohammed, Andre Risen, Mark Ingram, Derek Mason, Plaxico Burris, College Hall of Famers Kirk Gibson and Gene Washington. So when did Michigan State become wide receiver you? Are you kidding me? From day one. No. <laughs> you, know, I, you, know, I, you know, it's funny, guys. I mean, I think, um, you know, when you, when you think about Michigan State and, you know, playing in the Big Ten, playing in the cold weather, um, you know, pro-style offense, um, you know, and, and, and conditions that I think really, you know, test the spirit and character of, of players. And, uh, you know, historically, when, when you think about Michigan State, you know, a, a run for run first type of offense that's, Primarily, um, you know, predicated on the defensive prowess of, you know, guys like George, uh, Perlis that was a author of the Steel Curtain and, um, and, and guys like that, you know, um, Hank Bullers and, you know, those types of guys. Um, scratch your head and say, well, wait a minute. I mean, they got wide receivers that go to this school. Well, you know, we are conditioned. I, I call us the black and blue type of wide receivers and we're really built. Uh, to last, we, we're, we're you know kind of Motor City, call them Motor City type bad boys, but we're made out of steel frames and we're we're built to last. <laughs> hey, Moosen, I'm going to warn you. There's a conflict of interest here. Rick Gosson went to Michigan State too, so expect some more leading questions here. Okay. <laughs> hey, hey, give me some lobs. I can dunk it too now. <laughs> well, well uh, Moosen, you play as you mentioned. You played under George Pros, who loved to run the ball. So how does a guy who caught only 69 passes in college and scored five touchdowns catch 860 passes in the NFL and score 62 touchdowns? Did you always know that that receiver was locked inside the guy that Perlis was was uh, tying to the uh, to the end of the line when you were in college? Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's a funny story, but um, I took some of the best advice um, that was ever given to me from my dad and. Uh, when I was in high school, I was an all-state linebacker and and, uh, and running back. And my father told me, he said, man, you know, son, you know, the NFL is going to these, you know, prototypical big wide receivers that, you know, can jump and catch. And I was like a basketball player, too, when I was in high school. Uh, and so I made the conversion in college. Now, it was not an easy one. It was, you know, it was hard and you know, I, I had my bumps and bruises along the way in school and, you know, kind of got in a doghouse because I was a you know tough kind of kid and, um, you know, really never got that uh, opportunity to become a starter um, under George. You know, it was, it was actually Nick Saban when Nick came in uh, and uh, we had a change of regiment. Um, uh, when Nick came in, I got this opportunity and, and really, that was my first year of uh, really starting as a wide receiver was my senior year. And uh, I really started to learn the position. Um, I really started to develop when I got to the next level uh, as an NFL receiver. And my career really started when I got to the NFL. I, you know, my, my, my senior year was really my, my breakout party. Uh, but then I really became a pro as I studied the game in, in the National Football League. 
Well, Moussin, you, you said the uh, conversion was not an easy one, and I can understand that. Um, and yet you played all four of your seasons there at Michigan State with two quarterbacks who would start in the NFL. That would be Jim Miller and Tony Banks. Um, and I understand that you said you really didn't, uh, didn't mature until maybe that, that senior year. But I'm just wondering, playing with those two guys or, or maybe playing with one, how much did that help prepare you for the next level? How much did it help you develop as a wide receiver? You know, I, I would say tremendous amount. You know, playing playing with the you know guys like Jimmy Miller, uh, Tony Banks, um, I would say you know prepared you. I mean, obviously, you know the the, the touch passes and uh, you know having a pro style offense, quarterbacks that can actually you know call cadences and formations and uh, protections and, and and the whole deal. Um, and, and then I would also say, guys, that uh, you have to look at the guys who coached us, too. I mean, you know, Charlie Baggett was my wide receiver coach. He was a longtime Houston Oilers um, wide receiver coach. Um, Skip Pete was uh, one of my other coaches as well that played, you know, excuse me, um, coached at the uh, NFL level as well. So we had NFL-level uh, coaching um, along the whole way. And... Uh, you know, I think that was one of the things that really separated us was our preparation, our film study. Um, you know, we weren't guys that had to look at cards in order to read defenses or, or learn plays, you know, looking at some side, looking at the sideline, trying to figure out what's going on on the field. No, we really had to read defenses, and they prepared us for um, the next level. And, and that's what it was all about. And, of course, you know, having quarterbacks that can get you the ball um, you know, when you need the ball, uh, definitely helps. So what was your most memorable moment at Michigan State? I, I, I'd have to say the win that we beat Michigan. I mean, you know, we went back and forth, and I had two wins, two losses against Michigan. But uh, they say he who laughs last laughs best. So we won our last game against Michigan at home under the lights. <laughs> Uh, you know, that was probably one of the most memorable games, uh, you know, in my career. I think the other one was um, – you know, my bowl game against LSU, and uh, I think I still have uh, uh, the um, Independence Bowl record for receiving yards and, uh, and, and, and just overall performance as a receiver. Hmm. Now, a lot of people would argue that you had the greatest game of your life in that Super Bowl against the Patriots. You had four caught four passes for 140 yards. I believe that's an average of 35 yards a catch. I'm no mathematician, but I think so. Uh, <laughs> if, 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 if Adam Benedetti misses that field goal, you might have been the Super oh, Bowl MVP. Yeah, you could have been the Super Bowl MVP. Uh, you had the 85-yard touchdown uh, that gave Carolina the lead in the fourth quarter. How? Two things. How tough was it to lose that game? And number two, I've had a lot of Patriots, uh, Richard Seymour in particular, has told me a number of times that that was the hardest-hitting football game he ever played in. Yeah, what was your no, I tell you, it was a tough game to lose, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, God bless John Casey, you know, keeping that ball out of bounds and giving Tom Brady a short field to put him in field goal position, you know, that was just a tough pill to swallow. Um, but uh, it was hard hitting. I, and, you know, they had a number of guys that, that went out and, and had their game even gone into overtime. Uh, they didn't have enough players to play on defense. I mean, it was um, – you know, they were decimated, and uh, uh, it, it, it was it was a tough, hard-hitting, hard-fought game. Uh, and probably one of the most explosive second halves um, in the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, I think with the rule changes now, you're starting to see a lot more points scored in games, but uh, definitely one of the more exciting games to play in. And, uh, you know, as I reflect and I look back, you know, I know a lot of guys have played this game for, um, you know, multi multiple years and, and never played in a playoff game. 
you know, I have a lot to be thankful for. I have a lot to sort of cherish with uh, the career, the memories of my career. Um, man, I still feel like I left a little bit on the plate, though. You know, when you lose one like that and you lose one like you did in uh, Miami when I was with the Chicago Bears, you know, we, uh, you know, it was just tough. It was, it's a tough way to lose a Super Bowl by a field goal. Quick follow-up to that, uh, Musin. Uh, what the heck happened at halftime? I mean, the first half was a big defensive struggle and nobody could move six inches and, and, and you guys were struggling a little bit at quarterback. And then they come out in the second half and it's like, Fireworks and and <laughs> thousand yards. What happened at halftime? You know, it's you know, it's like when you go to the school dance. You know what I mean? You're just trying to find a, you know somebody to dance with. You know, you're looking around the room and you know, you're just kind of you know feeling your way around a little bit. And then you see somebody, and all of a sudden you turn into John Travolta, right? It's a Saturday Night Light. So it was kind of one of those things. I think we we're just filling each other out. You know. Um, and, and you have to keep in mind, you got two defensive coaches on both sides of the field with uh, Fox and Belichick, right? Both of these guys are co- defensive coordinators, so they're not necessarily, you know, running and gunning type of uh, uh, offensive minded. And so it took a little while to settle in. I think that's what you saw. And then the second half, you know, the fireworks opened up, and it was all fun. We're speaking with former Michigan State and NFL star receiver Moosin Muhammad on the Talk of Fame Network. Pardon. You can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And Moosin, the next season, and following that, that uh, Super Bowl, the next season you caught 93 passes for 1,400 yards and 16 touchdowns. Wow, on your way to the Pro Bowl. Then you left. As you mentioned, you left for Chicago as a free agent. How difficult was it to say goodbye to the Panthers? You'd been there, I think, nine years. How difficult was it to leave it behind? Yeah, you know, it was. It was tough, you know. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, there are salary cap restraints and, um, you know, other sort of complications, um, you know, with uh, trying to put together an NFL roster. Uh, and it was tough. Uh, you know, I played nine years there in, in, in Carolina. My heart was in Carolina. But, uh, you know, you guys know this is a business, too, you know. And uh, uh, sometimes you got to make uh, business decisions. You know, I think uh, Primetime said it best. You know, you got to make a business decision so you can feed your family every now and then, right? So that's uh, – it, but it was, it was tough, you know, um, coming off the best, uh, you know, season of, of my career. That you know, thus far after you know nine years in the league, uh, and then to uh, not be able to get a deal done with the, with the you know team that I started with, uh, uh, you know, it was a tough deal to swallow. But um, I, I, hey, when I went to Chicago, I loved Chicago, um, and they welcomed, they opened up their arms and welcomed me and uh, made me feel right at home. And so I became a bear overnight. And uh, man, for the next three years, we won in Chicago. Most your son, Most Muhammad III, is only a sophomore wide receiver, but already has scholarship offers from the likes of Tennessee, Virginia Tech, North Carolina, North Carolina State, and ta-da, Michigan State. So, which Most Muhammad is the best receiver <laughs> in the family? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the best athlete. Now, I, I played four sports in high school. You know, I I, uh, I played football basketball, grand track, and, and I actually won a state championship in boxing. So, you know, I, I'll tell you who's the best fighter in the house, but my son is probably the best athlete in the house. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he he definitely is, is, is the best athlete. You know, some of the, uh, you know, backflips and, you know, my, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, uh, is a gymnast. And so all my kids, you know, by default, learn how to do tumbling and, you know, backflips and all that kind of stuff. And so, 
You know, I don't know if you guys watch this stuff, but this new generation of kid of athletes, man. I mean, they're very athletic. These guys can do all kind of tumbling acts and flips, and um, you know, he's six foot. He can dunk the ball with two hands. You know, basketball is sophomore, and, um, and 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 he's got great hands. Um, I think he, you know, I, I had to work to develop my hands when I got to uh, Michigan State. Um, he's starting off in high school, and I'm teaching him everything, and he's. Uh, let's just say that the student is exceeding the professor right now. <laughs> it's, the, it, it, it's, it's the old school gladiator spirit, right? <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. Hey, Moosin, thanks so much for the time, and good luck sorting out those collegiate offers for your son. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. You, you bet. Sure. That was former wide receiver Moosin Muhammad. Up next is Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we've got a draft to get to, so Robert, have the guy in that corner below the whistle, would you please? That's the two-minute warning. Yeah, that means we're on to the two-minute drill again, so Goose, let's get going. Where does Des Bryant wind up in 2018? On the mound. Isn't that where most athletes wind up? <laughs> Standing on the sidelines with his arm folded, mean mugging his quarterback and his coach. <laughs> the Eagles cut Daryl Worley this month after he was arrested for DUI plus weapons and disorderly conduct charges. Inside of two weeks, the Raiders signed him. Is there a message here? Yes, there is. Commitment to petulance. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Al Davis lives. <laughs> If the Raiders cut their 2017 first-round pick, Ruben Foster, for his domestic violence arrest, where does he wind up in 2018? In court. Wrong. How about them Cowboys? (laughs) (laughs) Same thing, right? Amnesty International gave Colin Kaepernick its Ambassador of Conscience Award. Who in the NFL should receive an Ambassador of Conscience Award? This comes as a surprise. Tom Brady should be the game's highest-paid player, yet he doesn't make a peep. I mean, he's making a few peeps this year, but how about J.J. Watt for all he did in Houston? Speaking of Tom Brady, does Tom Brady play in 2018 under his existing contract? Yes, he does, because he's getting the Ambassador of Conscience Award. <laughs> no, he does not. Show me some love, Bill, and don't forget the money. The horse Gronkowski was scratched in the Kentucky Derby. Could that be an omen this season for another Gronkowski? Not unless he has to run a mile and a quarter. <laughs> well... If he turns over one of those dirt bikes he was hustling last week at Gillette Stadium, it could be. Josh Rosen, Josh Groban, or Josh Brolin? Josh McDaniels, only guy who can be in two places at one time. (laughs) Josh Gibson, the Black Babe Ruth. After seeing his best friend Jordy Nelson cut, Aaron Rodgers wants more input in Green Bay's decision-making process. Does he deserve a voice? Sure, yes he does, but only in the huddle. Yes he does if he retires and wants to become a scout. John Gruden makes his debut as Raiders coach on Monday Night Football. Who's drawing up the schedule, the NFL or ESPN? ESPN. Money talks, the NFL walks. <laughs> Do you really have to ask? Which game on the 2018 schedule most excites you? Anyone with Tom Brady in it. <laughs> this is a surprise. Pittsburgh, Baltimore. Street fight every time. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Musa Muhammad, Pete Doherty, and Rob Rank for joining us. Robert Harris Jr. for producing us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any of our podcasts, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too. 